Is that prophetic? <laughs> is it coming out now? Yeah. Are we good? Yeah. Right, that's it, man. I can preach with a red light, Jim. <laughs> Amen. Good to be with you guys. Everybody doing good? Good. I know it's a Saturday morning, but thanks for coming and being with us. I'm excited to be together. and It's just, just fun just to be able to come and, and actually look into I, I, what I want to share with us today is what does God think about me? Um, we live in a place, if I was to title this, I would simply title it Sonship Identity and the Finished Work of the Cross because 97% of what I preach has to do with Sonship Identity and the Finished Work. So I thought that was a great title. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but I do feel really good. I, uh, I so appreciate the idea. Um, this book tells me who I am. And, and can I say this? You don't have to be brilliant to understand it. You just need the Holy Spirit. I, I'm so glad you don't have to be brilliant. When, like, like when I was in school, most of the report cards I brought home were wet. And uh, they weren't wet because I cried. They were wet because they were below sea level. Uh, but, <laughs> but that's little Jim Baker humor going on there. <laughs> but, but the idea, man, I mean, everything in my heart says, I, I can talk to you real plain. Uh, uh, Pastor Dan and I have been pretty close. Uh, I think we've been together 16, 17 years. And he's so impacted my life over the years. And I, and I talk about that with a lot of, lot of places. And, and, and I could sit here and think, wow, you know, I'm preaching and dancing in the congregation. And I could be intimidated by that. And if I don't have my identity, when I come off the platform, I'm like, how did I do? And I would check with Dan or I would check with Jim or, more importantly, Mary. Uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, <laughs> but, but when you understand who you are and you know your identity in Christ, you don't come off the platform looking for their approval. You come off the platform you look up, how did I do? Why? Because if I, if I live by your approval, I'll die by your criticism. But if I live by his approval, I'm in. And I, and I hope that makes sense. And, and I think everything has to do with understanding that. And that becomes a really, really important part of our life. So for the next little while, I just want to talk to us about some of those places. Let's go to Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. And uh, probably quite a, quite a season back, I preached 50 weeks in a row on this text. And for 50 weeks in a row at Harvest Chapel, I preached straight out of Galatians 4, 4, and 5. Because it was the beginning of my understanding, identity, sonship, and the finished work of the cross. And uh, I'll probably quote, I'm going to read, and you'll see it on the screen in the New King James. If I quote it, I'll probably quote it in the King James, because that's kind of what I cut my teeth on was the King James, because it thought if it was good enough for Paul, it was good enough for me. And, <laughs> but, 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 uh. But it was part of where I got saved, and uh, that's all we did was King James back then. Uh, but in, in the place I've thought, I've told people, I memorized about a thousand scriptures in the King James, and I'm too lazy to memorize them in every other version. So if I quote scripture, it'll probably sound like that. But in the process of that, if you look at this verse, it actually is going to say something I think is really powerful. It says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And I think those verses really sum up the whole purpose and intent of Jesus coming. If anybody asks you, why did Jesus come? I think you could take him right here. Because what's it say? When the fullness of the time was come, God sent his son. Why? To redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Right? So, so if we read it from that perspective, then obviously the purpose of his coming is redemption and sonship. And one of the things we need to understand is if he came for redemption, we probably ought to find out what does redemption actually mean. 
I think the clearest understanding of redemption sounds something like this. I'm standing with Adam in the midst of the garden. It's like we never ate the fruit. Come on. That's powerful. I heard you say that. Okay. <laughs> but, 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 but that's so powerful to me. Listen, it's like we never ate the fruit. What's that mean? Sin doesn't touch me any longer. The effects of sin don't have an effect on me. I'm redeemed. And so oftentimes when we hear people preach, they'll tell you what they were redeemed from, how they were redeemed from sin, how they were redeemed from addiction, how they were redeemed from pornography. I don't want to tell you what you've been redeemed from. I want to tell you what you've been redeemed to. Because I think what you've been redeemed to is much more valuable than what you've been redeemed. You already know what you were redeemed from. You need to know what you were redeemed to. What did what came with the package? Sonship. What sonship mean? I think sonship means something to me. If I'm a joint heir with Jesus, what's that mean? That means I inherited everything he inherited. So I guess I ought to find out what he inherited so I know what I inherited. Am I making sense? It really matters to me that we get a hold of this kind of stuff because here's the reality. We'll never walk in an authority we don't know we have. We'll never walk in an understanding that we don't understand. But once we start to understand what he actually paid for, I I just live in a world that says Jesus ought to get what he paid for. Honestly, man, if I bought you a brand new refrigerator, it was the top of the line, a really nice one, and you could see through the door, all the bells and the whistles, everything about it was fantastic. Best refrigerator on the market. I paid for it at Lowe's. I said, dude, I bought you a refrigerator. You can go, all you got to do is go pick it up, right? It's already bought and paid for. It's the best one Lowe's had. It was $4,500, and you can have it. It's all yours. Just go get it. You know what? If I come back in a year and I say, hey, how are you enjoying that refrigerator? And you look at me and say, well, you know, things got pretty busy. Life took its toll. I haven't actually picked it up yet. I'm like, what? I'm going to be a little frustrated. Why? I paid for that. And I think you ought to get what I paid for. How much more should we get what he paid for? Now, listen, God's not frustrated, so don't go, like, okay, like, God's not pacing the course. I don't know what's wrong with them kids. I don't know. I paid for everything, and they don't pick it up, because he doesn't get like that, right? But the reality is, I think if it's available, we ought to go for it. Does that make sense? This is kingdom school, right? Here's the reality. If you were to do a survey and ask most people, Okay, what is, what's the central message of the body of Christ? I think it's pretty simple. You must be born again, right? John 3, 16, central message of the church. You must be born again. Can I tell you something? It wasn't the central message of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus only ever said you must be born again one time to one man in the middle of the night. Come on, it's the Nick at night experience. (laughs) Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, right? Am I right? Come on. Right? It's, it's the only time he ever said that. Now, I'm not taking away from the born-again experience because we have to be born again, and I understand that. But 36 times you're going to find Jesus has a different message. 36 times if you read through the Gospels, you know what you're going to find? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Change the way you think. I've come and I brought my kingdom with me, and I'm inviting you to walk with me in this kingdom relationship. So I guess if that's the case, we probably ought to start to look at what does that actually look like, okay? Because here's what I believe, man. I believe God's empowering us in this hour. God is raising up a glorious bride, not an enamored leadership team. And I I think this is not like a, it's got to be, can I say this? We're all invited onto the field to play. So, So there has to be something to this to understand, okay? Let's start in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. All my Bible scholars, you just know, you know, right where I went, right away, right? What's he say? 
Let us make man in our own image, right? God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let him have dominion, right? Does it say that? Come on. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. How many know God's making man in his own image and his own likeness? This is what he's saying, right? And what's he saying? He gives us a dominion mandate. What? Over the birds of the air, the fowls, the fish of the sea, over the creeps, uh, all that stuff, okay? <laughs> so, so you have dominion, right? And, 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 and can I say this? Wow, I need to talk to us. I've, I'm going to go a couple different places. Are we allowed down there? Okay. I didn't know how the cameras would work. That's why. But, but let me ask you. I'll just take us a couple of places. The idea behind this, to understand this, is huge. To understand what you've been empowered with and the authority that you've been given, you need to understand something. Everything Jesus does, he does as a man. In a right relationship with the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because if you'd have told me that 20 years ago, I'd have called you a heretic. Right? Because he's God. No, everything he does, he does as a man in a right relationship with the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. How do you know that? Acts 10, 38. How God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Does it say that in your Bible? It does. I promise you, it's exact quote, right? So the idea behind it is what? How God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Well, if he, everything he does, he does as God, then he doesn't need anointed by God. He is God. Right? And it says, for God was with him. It doesn't say, for he was God. Does it, you understand what I'm saying? So everything he does, he does in a right relationship. Say, so, I don't know, Pastor. Well, let me take you to another place then. James in chapter 1 says, let no man say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God. For God tempteth no man, neither can he be tempted with evil. Does your Bible say that? Right? But Luke 4 and Matthew 4 both say how, how Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for what? To be tempted of the devil. Right? If God can't be tempted, then he must have been doing it as a man. Everybody follow what I'm saying? So why? Because, why is that important? Because Jesus said, follow me. If everything he does, he does as God, I don't have a model I can follow. But if everything he does, he does as a man in a right relationship with the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, now I've got somebody I can actually follow. Does this make sense? So now that's our empowerment. This is our right and our privilege. This is part of what came with sonship. This is part of the inheritance that we've been given. Everybody with me? So out of that place, right, he says, let's make man in our own image after our own likeness. How many know Adam is created in the image of God? That's pretty awesome to me. I mean, if you think about how amazing this is, that God takes dirt, brings in the dirt, and up jumps a man. Come on. That's pretty amazing. And then, you know what the Bible goes on to say? And God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became what? A living soul. Why is that important? Because Adam's first waking moment is a face-to-face -face encounter with the living God. We're created for face-to-face -face encounters. We're created to know him. We're created to be in relationship and fellowship with him. And if we miss that, then we see God as distant and we're separated. And somehow there's a separation and not a union. And Jesus came to bring us to a union. Right? So now you got Adam and he's created and he's on the earth and it's doing, he's doing awesome. Right? Uh, chapter 2, verse 17, probably somewhere right around there, God actually says something. It's not good for man to be alone. Right? I'll make a help me comparable to him. Right? There you go. And, and what is it? 18. I was close. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so in that, I want you to see that because I think it's huge. What's he say? It's not good for man to be alone. When I read my Bible, I like to read what it says. Right? It says it's not good for man to be alone. It's the only place God said it's not good. 
Everything else he was doing, it was good. It was good. It was good. Then it was very good, right? And now we read this verse that says it was not good. It was not good for man to be alone. When I read my Bible, I don't just read what it says. I like to read what it doesn't say, right? Because what it says is it's not good for man to be alone. What it doesn't say is it's not good for man to be lonely. Why? Adam was alone, but he wasn't lonely. How many know Adam's not lonely? The Bible says that God came down and walked with Adam in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day. Come on, man. If Jesus is your best playmate, you're not lonely. You're really bad at hide and go seek. But other than that, you're having a blast. <laughs> he's not lonely, but he's alone. What does, what's the difference? There's a huge difference. Why? All you got to do is read the next couple of verses. What happens? God causes all the animals to pass before Adam. And when all the animals pass before Adam, what's happening? He's giving them all names. And whatever Adam named them, that's what they were, right? So you got Mr. and Mrs. Rhinoceros. you got Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus. you got Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, Mr. and Mrs. Tiger, Mr. and Mrs. Lion, Mr. and Mrs. Chimpanzee, right? And they're all passing by, and he's naming them what they are. But it says at the end of that, but there was no helpmate found for Adam, right? I'm really glad. <laughs> We'll just leave that alone. <laughs> right? So what's he do? He puts Adam to sleep, takes out a rib, and creates woman. Right? And Adam named her. Because I actually believe he puts Adam to sleep, takes out a rib, and when Adam wakes up, he goes, whoa, man. Okay, so, but, 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 but out of that, out of that, what happened? We need to understand something that happened. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helpmate comparable. What was he saying? Adam's alone, but he's not lonely. What's it actually mean? All those animals pass by, but there's no one of like kind for Adam to pour his love into. Adam is created in the image of God. 1 John 4 and 8 says God is love. So Adam is created in the image of love, but there's no one of like kind to pour his love into. Right? Because why? Because you can love your cat. But if you love your cat the same way you love your spouse, you're twisted and you need therapy. <laughs> There's just some help necessary for you. Right? Why? Because we love different with you. Do you understand what I'm saying? So Eve isn't created because Adam has a deficit and is lacking, right? Eve is created because Adam has an overflow and needs someone of like kind to pour his love into because he's been created in the image of God and the image of God is love. Eve's not created because Adam's lacking in something. If you're a young man or a young woman and you're looking for a spouse to fulfill you, you got it backwards, man. You're already full and you just need somebody to love, not somebody to love you and fill a void and an empty place in your life. Man, I tell the young ladies at Harvest, I said, listen, man, you keep chasing Jesus. If there's a man that can keep up to you, you can take a look. Other than that, keep running. <laughs> Jesus is enough. There has to be something of understanding. So he says it's not good for a man to be alone. He creates a helpmate, and that's Eve, right? And we know the story, and it's pretty awesome, right? And out of that place, man, Eve's created. They're doing pretty good. And then something happens. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Look at the first seven verses because I think they're really strong, Okay. Since the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he says something to Eve. Watch what he says. He says, has God said? Can I stop right there for just a second? I promise you, man, that phrase is still right on the devil's lips. Did God really mean that? 
well, it's okay, everybody does it. No, just because everybody does it doesn't make it okay. I want to give you this word, man. This is kingdom living. I'm talking kingdom living right now. Never violate your heart and conscience before God, no matter what everybody else is doing. Even if it became socially acceptable in the church, doesn't mean it's okay with you. You better keep your heart pure and your conscience clear, man. Why? Because you want to pray with confidence before God. And the devil will get on your shoulder and say, well, did God really mean this? Did God really mean that? And we got all kind of hot topics we could throw out there, and I'm not going to. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit speak to your life about where you're at. But I'm going to challenge you, man. Don't allow the lying lips of the enemy even a spot near your ear. So he says to Eve, has God said, right, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we can eat of the fruit, uh, fruit of the trees in the garden, right? But keep reading. Watch what it goes on to say. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely not die, for God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Everybody see it? It's amazing to me. A couple of things that we have to understand. God spoke to Adam and said, don't eat of the tree. Right? If you eat of the tree, you'll die. When Eve spoke to the serpents, he said, we're not allowed to even touch it. God didn't say don't touch it. He said don't eat of it. But I think Adam was trying to protect her. Right? Don't even touch it. Okay? So we'll just leave that out here. But I want to take you a step further. It wasn't just the tree of the knowledge of evil. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everybody understand what I just said? I think God didn't want them to know good or evil. They just wanted them to know him. Because if all I know is God, that's all I need to know. It's only because we know evil that we understand there's a separation of good and evil. What if we just knew God? Oh. But in the midst of that, what, 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 I'm going to take us somewhere. The serpent comes along and says to Eve, oh, if you'll eat it, right, you'll be like God. Why does Eve eat of that tree? Because she believed God was holding something back from her. The root of every sin, the root of every sin is selfishness. Every sin has its roots right here in selfishness. The original sin is really a sin of selfishness. Why? You mean there's something more for me. And so she takes that and says, if there's more for me and God's holding something back from me, I guess I better eat it because I want it for me. Can I talk to you? Every sin still has its roots right there in selfishness. What's it say? Listen, if a man, if a man steals from another man, why? That man had to work something this guy wants to, for free. He's going to take from the man who had to work for it because he wants it for himself. If a man tells a lie, what's he doing? He's protecting himself right? Come on. If a man commits adultery, he doesn't care if it hurts 200 other people. What's he doing? He wants something for himself. Why? Because every sin has its roots in selfishness. That's why Jesus said, if any man would be my disciple, let him deny the devil. No, he didn't say deny the devil. Why? The devil's not your biggest problem. Your self is, your flesh is, your own selfish desires are. He said, if you're going to follow me, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. 
And we have to understand that. It all started right here. There was something more for me. And I stop and I think about that stuff and I think, man, it's still, it's still the greatest challenge in the body of Christ is dying to ourself. So now sin comes in. And you know what they did? They took fig leaves. Listen, I ain't a farmer. But I got to tell you, after two weeks, I know what's going to happen. <laughs> That's not a good day. <laughs> and they covered themselves with fig leaves. I can take you a step further and tell you something, man. What God do about that? When he comes looking for Adam, can we talk a minute? We say, oh, you know, man, I don't know how much time I got, but let me do this. We tell people, man. When Jesus is on the cross and says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Right? We say because he became sin, God couldn't look on sin. If God couldn't look on sin, why did he come looking for Adam? I'll bet that's not what happened there. You understand what I just said? Come on, man. That's not what happened. He came looking for Adam. If God couldn't look on sin, how'd you get born again? Because <laughs> i got to promise you, you had a bunch of it. <laughs> but the reality is he still looked on that sent his Holy Spirit to draw us no man comes to the Father except the Spirit draw him come on so when he says my God my God why hast thou forsaken me actually I don't have time to go into all this but if you look Psalm 22 Psalm 23 and Psalm 24 are actually a progression of Friday Saturday and Sunday on the cross the, the, the death and burial and the resurrection what do you mean? Psalm 22 starts out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is called a messianic psalm. You read through it, you know what it says? It's the picture of Jesus on the cross. You, they've pierced my hands and my feet. You can count all my bones. They cast garments for my lot. It was called a messianic psalm. It was a psalm that David prophesied the coming of the Messiah. When Jesus is hanging on the cross saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's not a desperate cry of pain or sorrow. It's actually a cry of mercy. If you only knew what you were doing. For a father forgive them they don't know what they're doing if you only knew why because every one of them would have known that psalm because they would have sang it it was like the songbook of the early church they would have sang that if I say amazing grace how sweet the sound most of you your mind went that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see why because you know the songs they would have known that psalm and actually saw it being played out before them right there on the cross Right? Come on. Psalm 23, most of you know. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Come on. Psalm 24, lift up your head, O ye gates. Lift up your head, you everlasting doors, for the King of glory is coming through. Oh, come on. Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are just a projection of the coming victory of the Messiah and what he was bringing for every one of us that we might receive redemption and sonship because it's what he paid for. In the midst of that, I didn't plan on going there. I got too many other things to say. <laughs> but God comes and visits Adam and Eve in the midst of their challenge. And you know what he does? He strips away those fig leaves. What did he do? Come on, you guys know this. Covered them, right? He covered them with animal skins. And here's the reality, man. This is the love of a good, good father. Why? Because if they stay in their fig leaves, every time Adam looks at Eve... And every time Eve looks at Adam, you know what they see? The fig leaves and their sin and their shame. But now that they've been covered by the animal skins that the Heavenly Father would bring to them, that a good, good father would cover them with, every time Adam sees Eve, every time Eve sees Adam, they're not remembering their sin and their shame. They're remembering the love of a father who covered them in the midst of their sin and shame. 
That's a good God. That's a good Father. That's the Father I know. That's the nature and character of the God that I love. So now, sins come in. And sins cause the separation now. And they're expelled from the garden. You guys know the whole story. And in the midst of all that, now you got the sons born, Cain and Abel. And chapter 4, Cain rocks Abel to sleep. <laughs> we get to chapter 5. Can I show you something in chapter 5? Because you probably need to see this. Go to chapter 5 and look at, look at what, how it starts. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created a male and female and blessed them. and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Wait a minute. They begot a son in his own likeness after his own image. What was Adam's likeness? Come on, man. Adam's now in a fallen state. And every son born after the fall, every child born after the fall is born into Adam. Come on, man. You were born into Adam. And we need to understand, we took on Adam's nature instead of God's nature. We were born into Adam's family. And I don't know if how many of you are my age, but you ought to know the Adam's family they're crazy and they're kooky. They're all together. Come on. Come on. Come on. Why? Because Adam's family's crazy and spooky and goofy, man. Come on. Every one of us was born with the nature of Adam, not the nature of God. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be. Why? Because you were born into Adam. Now you want to be born into Christ. And that's the whole reality of the gospel, man. So now we come to know him. What happens? We take on a new nature and a new character. Whew. Well, I could talk about a lot of things, man. But here's the reality. If we can understand this new creation reality, I'll bet things could be different. Whew. I believe in this new creation reality. I don't have to deal with everything I already dealt with. It's been dealt with at the cross. Whew. I'll bet we could, we could eliminate a whole lot of counseling if we understood the new creation reality. I bet we could eliminate a whole lot of problems if we really understood who we were as a new creation in Christ. Why? Because old things were passed away. You know what happened when my grandpa passed away? We buried him. <laughs> and we didn't keep digging him up every third week. <laughs> Why? Because when something's buried, come on, it's passed away, you bury it, it's done with. Whew. Don't give that stuff a seat at your table. Don't give it a bed in your house, man. It doesn't belong there. Whew. I began to understand this gospel, man, and it gripped my heart. My life began to change, and I saw things differently, and I realized, man, can I say this? I was really, really lost. And then I got really, really found. And I don't have to go back to being really lost anymore. I want to say this. I got saved in 1978. I never looked back. You don't have to have an up and down journey. You don't have to go back and forth. There's a place of solidity. There's a place of, of consistency and stability that's necessary in the body of Christ. I think those are the two biggest words that we need in the body of Christ right now is consistency and stability. That we would actually know who we were. Come on. Why? 
Because when you know who you are, oh, you can walk this thing out. But if you don't know who you are, you'll spend the rest of your life letting somebody else tell you who you are. Can I tell you this? I am who God says I am. And I have what God says I have. I'm not who my mom and dad said I was. I'm not who my teachers said I was. i got to tell you something. There's a whole lot of people that told me I'd never make it. Can I say this? When the devil comes whispering in your ear telling you all the bad stuff, you need to learn how to celebrate that. You ought to celebrate that. Why? Here's the reality of that, man. It's John 8 and 44. It says every time he speaks, he speaks a lie. Because he's a liar and the father of it. Am I right? Come on. So here's the reality, man. If the devil says you're going down, like he's getting on your ear, things are getting bumpy, they're getting challenging. And the, the devil's like, boy, things are, you're going down now. You're going down now. I don't know about you, but every time I hear that stuff from the devil, I'm like, wow, glory to God. The devil said I'm going down. Every time he speaks, he speaks a lot. I must be going up. It's going to get really good. I got to believe God. Come on. The devil said I'm about to fail. That means victory's right around the corner. Bless God because he's a liar and the father of it. There has to be a point where we learn to celebrate the whispers of hell. I bet if you started celebrating every time the devil lied to you, he'd probably slow it down a bit. <laughs> oh, but we got to get to, hang on. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, here's the reality, man. This is the gospel. It's good news. Do you understand the word gospel actually means good news? It's actually a military term. You on galleon. It literally means good news. The rider would be coming on the horse into the army to shout, you on, Galleon. It was good news. The army's advancing. <sighs> it's good news. It's not sometimes good and sometimes bad. It's not occasionally good news. It's just good news. Jesus pays an amazing price. He doesn't pay an amazing price to get you to heaven. Heaven was not the goal. Get you back to the Father. That was the goal. Get you back in the family. That was the goal. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to heaven. No. No man comes to the Father but by me. It was about getting you back in the family. Because God started in Genesis to create a family. That's why he has all kind of family terms. Come on, father, son. Come on, that's all family terminology, right? To get you back in the family. And it's all about getting you back in the family. And, and, and it's all about having that relationship, that family relationship again. And, and, he, and he does it. He pays an amazing price, man. Why don't you go with me for a minute and just think. They're in the upper room. They do the communion. I love the table, man. I've been preaching a lot about the table. I don't have time to go there right now, but, man, this is the blood of the new covenant. In my, this is the new covenant in my flesh. This is the cup of the blood of the new covenant. What's he saying? There's a, there's a new covenant. The biggest challenge we have in the body of Christ right now is we're still mixing covenants. We're still trying to live out a, a, a new covenant relationship, but we still have an old covenant mentality. Yeah. Hosea 4 and 6, he said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. But I think we have a lack of knowledge because we had an abundance of bad teaching. Yeah. I said that out loud, didn't I? Sorry. <laughs> Just kind of slips out sometime. But, but, but we need to understand this new covenant relationship is everything, man. And it brings us to a place of union with Christ. It was, it was probably a dozen years ago or more. We had a group from Oregon that came out to harvest, and, and there was a little girl. She was probably about like 16 or 17, and, but we were doing a series of different ones, just letting them teach a little bit. And she came, and she started teaching, and she said, man, she said, when I got born again, she said, I understood, man. Me and Jesus, we were like this. 
And she twisted her fingers together. She said, we're like this. And, and she said, and, and she said, and I told people, me and Jesus, man, he's my best friend. We're just like this. And she said, then I started really reading my Bible, and I began to understand that's not true. We're not like this. We're like this. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And I thought, whoa. And I thought, just tears. I'm like, lay your hand right here, honey. <laughs> but I wanted to get a hold of this reality, man. Jesus is in the upper room, and he's at the table, and they sing a hymn, and they head out. You guys know John like, like John 13 is the washing of the saints' feet. John 14 is a whole bunch of teaching. If you're reading John, like that's all red stuff. Read the red stuff. It's really good. And then, and then John 15, they're actually walking down through the Kidron Valley, right? I've been there. Today it's full of tombstones. But back in that day, it was the ancient grapevines. And he's actually walking through the grapevines. That's where the whole, the whole analogy, I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? And, and, he, and he takes us through that. And he goes to the, goes to the uh, Mount of Olives and over, he's praying it's, it's awesome. Sweat becomes his blood. It's powerful, man. He sheds his blood for us right there. What's happened? When he's praying in the garden and his sweat becomes his blood, what was he doing? Whew. I got to take us somewhere. He's in the garden and he's praying and his sweat becomes his great drops of blood. What's he pray? Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Why? Because the two gardens hold parallels. In the first garden, Adam actually ate of the fruit and said, not your will, my will be done. But in, the, in this garden now, Jesus is actually reversing everything. Why? <laughs> Come on, man. Why? Because the last Adam. Can, can I tell you this? 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the last Adam. The last Adam came to restore what the first Adam lost. And I love the idea that Paul called him the last Adam, not the second Adam, because I've heard people say the second Adam. If he's the second Adam, we might be looking for a third. But i got to tell you, he ain't the second. He's the last. Why? Because there's no more sacrifice necessary. Jesus paid it all, and it's a done deal now. Come on. Doesn't have to go back and do it again. Doesn't have to take again. Why? It's a happened thing. What's Jesus pray? He says, the first Adam said, not your will, my will be done, and ate of the fruit he wasn't allowed to eat. The last Adam now says, not my will, but but your will be done. And the first precious drops of redeeming blood begin to flow. Oh. Can I tell you something? The next thing that happens is they arrest him. When they arrest him in the garden, they grabbed a hold of his beard and plucked it out. You won't read it in the Gospels. You'll actually read it in the Psalms. But David said they plucked his beard from his face. And I thought, man, why? Oh, that redeeming blood would flow. Because the first Adam, after sin came, what, was, what did he do? He went and hid his face from God. But the blood would flow now from Jesus' face. Why? That we might turn our face toward him and have a face-to-face -face encounter with a God who loves us. Oh, that matters to me. They're going to take him to the whipping post, and they're going to whip his back, and they're going to smite him and tear, tear the, blood, the, the skin from his back, and that redeeming blood is going to flow one more time from the back of God. What's happening? When Adam fell in the garden, the burden of sickness and disease fell on the back of man. But now Jesus would give his back to the smiters. Why? Because by his stripes, that burden's been lifted, and we are healed. Every sickness, every disease has been taken care of right there. 
at the whipping post at Calvary. The next thing they're going to do is put a crown of thorns and they're going to smash it into his head. And blood's going to flow. Come on, that blood's going to flow from his head. What's happening? That redeeming blood. Why? Because in the first garden, man was crowned with dominion and authority, but the crown fell. But now Jesus would wear a crown of thorns and redeeming blood would flow that we might have the crown of life and be crowned again with dominion. That's the promise of God. It's his redeeming blood. He's bringing us back to our original purpose and value. Ooh, glory to God. The next thing they're going to do is nail his hands to a cross. Uh, and when they nail his hands to a cross, redeeming blood's going to flow. What's happening? Because why? Because in the garden early, man could lift up holy hands uh, and worship a holy God. But sin had come and separated man from God. But now Jesus uh, would shed redeeming blood that you and I might lift up holy hands uh, and worship uh, a holy God. Uh, or somebody ought to say, praise God. Uh, he's a holy God. And we get to worship him in holiness. Uh, And then the nail would pierce through his feet. Why? Because in the first garden, God came down and walked with Adam in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day. But now, man and God could no longer walk together. Sin had separated that union. But Jesus uh, would take a spike through his feet. Why? That you and I might walk with him. And the songwriter of old said it well. And he walks with me. And he talks with me. And he tells me that I am his own. But it ain't over, man, because he's hanging on that cross. You go back to that first garden, and God puts Adam to sleep. And he opens up his side and takes out a rib and creates a bride for Adam. Now Jesus is suspended between heaven and earth on an old rugged cross. And the sleep of death comes over him. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It's finished. And in the sleep of death, a Roman soldier in an impetuous moment comes by and takes a spear and opens up the side of Christ. And out comes blood and water. According to Paul's writings in Ephesians 5, I believe it's a purchase price for a bride. God put Adam to sleep, opened up his side, and pulled out a bride. Jesus is put to sleep. A side is opened up, the purchase price for the bride of Christ. Hang on, hang on. That's good preaching, brother. Good preaching right there. Okay, good. good. Okay, okay. We're all right now. He paid. He pays an amazing price for you and I not to live haphazardly. Oh, but to walk in holiness before a holy God. This is what kingdom living looks like. This is what the kingdom's all about. Listen, man, every one of us was messed up. They've beaten him. They've whipped him. They brought him out. They're ready to condemn him. Pontius Pilate has a dilemma because Mrs. Pilate came on. She came and she said, have nothing to do with the blood of this just man. I've been troubled this night by dreams. You guys remember this? Come on, man. Mrs. Pilate ain't happy. So Pilate, like, oh, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody going to be happy. Uh, some things don't change in 2,000 years. But anyway, <laughs> but, but, but in the midst of that, he's like, okay, I got to get this guy free. 
So he goes down into the lowest part of the prison, trying to find the worst hombre he can find. And he finds this guy down there. He's a bad dude, a murderer, commits, uh, uh, starts riots and committed murder. It, it, what was his name? Yeah, Barabbas. Why is that important? Because in Scripture, names mean something. Every time you see a name, there's a reason behind that, right? Remember Simon Barjona, right? When you see the prefix B-A-R, it actually means son of. So it's actually Simon, son of John. Everybody got that? Bartimaeus was the son of Timaeus, or the son of Timothy, right? B-A-R is son of, Bar-Abbas. Abbas is a derivative of Abba. What happened? Barabbas was guilty, sentenced to death, had no way out. And Jesus comes in and takes his place. What happened? Oh, the only begotten son came and took the place so that the sons of the father could go free. <laughs> Do you guys understand what I'm just saying? Come on, Barabbas is a prototype of every one of us. I was Barabbas. You were Barabbas. We were guilty and sentenced to death, and we had no way out. But Jesus paid the price so that we could be set free. Man, that ought to mean something to us. It doesn't come cheap, man. He paid an amazing price for every one of us. Why? Because there's a lost and dying and hurting world. And man, we're called to do something about it. Go with me to Luke chapter 10. Let me share some of my favorite things. Luke 10, we're going to start at 25. It says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the lawn? What's your reading of it? And he answered and said, You love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered rightly. Do this, and you'll live. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty great. What did he say? Can I say this? Here's what I believe. I believe when you and I stand before God, we have one question we're really going to have to respond to. Did you love well? Did you love well? Because when I read that, what's his say? Love God and love people. <sighs> love God and love people. I think that stuff matters. I think we ought to know, do we really love God? Can we talk a minute? We got to love God most. Had a situation a little while back, can't get into all the details, but... A guy leaves his wife and moves in with his girlfriend. How many know in the kingdom, that's illegal? <laughs> like, like, come on. And, and, and I call him, like, I've, I hear this, and I call, and he throws me into voicemail, and I call a bunch of times and shoot texts and no response, and I thought, I'm going to track him down. Why? Because I love him too much to let him go. If you love people, you can't ignore them in their sin. It is not okay. So I start tracking him down. I found him. When I found him, he's like, oh, I, I knew I scared him because I found him at work. Because <laughs> I will track you down. <laughs> and in the midst of that, I'm like, dude, what's going on? And, and his first, you know what his first statement to me was? I still love God. I'm reading my Bible every day. I'm like, that's awesome. And he, it gets emotional. I do. I really still love God. I love God. I really love God. And I looked at him. And I said, dude, there's, I, I'm not doubting whether or not you love God. I actually believe you do love God. I said, the problem is you love yourself more. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. 
Why? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Right? Come on, if you love me, you'll do what I told you. So there's a place where what? I might still love him, but if I love myself more, I'm going to do what pleases me rather than what pleases him. I think there's a lot of people that still struggle in that place. Why? Because we ain't dead to ourselves yet. Anybody understand what I just said? Come on. Who watched The Princess Bride? Come on, they were just mostly dead. (laughs) I should have showed the movie clip. Never mind. (laughs) You've been to Magic Max to get that chocolate-covered pill. I know. (laughs) We say we've not seen a resurrection. I think we have. We resurrected a man we thought was dead when we choose to live for ourselves rather than for him. So in the place of that, what we have to understand is as we're walking this thing out, what does it look like to really be dead to ourselves and alive to Christ? What does it look like? He says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I believe when we stand before God, the question we're going to have to answer, did you love well? Did we love well? Did we love God and did we love people? Because I don't believe I can love people properly if I don't love God properly. I'm going to have trouble loving my neighbor if I haven't received the love of God. I can't love my wife the way I'm supposed to if I haven't received Jesus' love because I'm supposed to love her the way Christ loves the church. But if I haven't received his love, how am I going to love her right? Next thing you know, it's needs-based, and all of a sudden, it's all about me, and how come you can't fulfill my need? We live in a world that's filled with that. So we ask the question, and here's the question we got to go to. He says, love your, love your neighbor as yourself. There's a whole bunch we could talk about. Jesus simply said, you've said well. Go and do that. And, and, and you'd think the guy should have, can I say this? He just got an boy from God. He should have walked away. <laughs> but the next verse says, but he willing to justify himself. There's a big problem in the body of Christ. We're still trying to justify ourselves. But he willing to justify himself, asked this question. Says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Everybody see it? Yeah. So here's the deal. Let's read. Who's my neighbor? Right? Uh, why do you think he asked that question? Like, listen, I'm good with loving my neighbor. I just want to know which one. Because there's a few of them I'm not too sure about. <laughs> who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Everybody see it? And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. That's pretty awesome. How many know it's the story of the the Good Samaritan, right? We've all read this. We've heard this. We've studied this. It's been pretty awesome. Heard it preached a bunch of different ways and a bunch of different times. It's a Wednesday afternoon. It's probably a dozen years ago. And I don't know how you guys do, but sometimes I walk into my office 
have my Bibles there, and I'll just open my Bible randomly. And it's on Wednesday afternoon. I opened my Bible randomly, and, and it came to this story, and I read it. And I don't know how you do, but I'll usually read a section of Scripture, and I just stop and pray over it. Because I don't want to just read it, I want to apply it. So I began to read that, and I thought, yeah, Lord, I want that, man. Teach me to love like that. See, I've got enough study in, in, to know that the Samaritans and the Jews had no dealing with one another. Do you guys know this? Like the Jews and Samaritans didn't play well together. You'll never find them in the same sandbox playing with the same truck. It is not happening. They do not like each other. As a matter of fact, for those of you that might not know, uh, Israel is a geographical territory just about a little bit bigger than New Jersey. So it's not a really big spot on the earth, right? Although it does seem to be the center of a whole lot of attention. In, in the midst of that, right, Israel itself is divided up into five provinces or states, if you would. And the Jordan River separates it from north to south. On the east side, you're going to have at the bottom, you're going to have Judea. In the middle, you're going to have Samaria. And at the north, you're going to have Galilee. On the opposite side of the river, right on the, on the other side of the river, on the west side of the river, you're going to have up here Decapolis, uh, 10 capitals. It's the 10 capitals of the Philistines, uh, Decapolis, Decapolis, and then below it is Perea. If I'm a good kosher Jew and I'm down here in Judea and I need to go to Galilee, I would actually cross the river, go up through Perea into Decapolis and come back. I wouldn't even walk on Samaritan soil. Everybody understand that? Right? Remember that Jesus said, uh, if you come to a house and they don't, they don't receive you, what did he say? Shake the dust from your feet. If a good Jew walked into Samaritan soil unknowingly, well, he would come back to his own territory and he would shake the Samaritan dust off their feet as a sign of, I don't want anything to do with that. Everybody got that? Most of the people that lived in Samaria actually were like their father might have been a Jew and their mother a Gentile, or their mother was a Jew and their father was a Gentile, and they were kind of considered in that day what they would have called half-breeds. Everybody got that? So they were looked down upon. People didn't go there. That's why it's odd when Jesus in John chapter 4 says, I must needs go through Samaria, right? Why? Because he's got an appointment at a well. Oh, boy, I could preach that for about an hour, but I better leave that alone. In the midst of that, what I want us to see and understand, follow this, is now, the, what I, when I'm praying this, I'm like, Lord, teach me to love like that. Why? Because that Samaritan stopped to help that Jew. And he didn't care that it was a, he was a Samaritan and that guy was a Jew. And I'm like, Lord, teach me that. That I don't care what the guys, what somebody's culture is, what their background is. I don't care if they're red, yellow, black, or white. I don't care if they're Muslim or Hindu or Christian. Just teach me to love people. I need to see people the way you see people. Lord, teach me to love like that. I want that kind of love in my heart for people. Increase my capacity to love beyond just my own culture and my own background. And the Holy Spirit said, that's really good. Read it again. So I thought, okay, fine. So I went back to read it again. A certain man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho fell among thieves who wounded him, stripped him of his raiment, left him half dead. A certain, by, ch by chance, a certain priest came by, passed by on the other side. Likewise, a certain Levite came by who came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to fallen man, had compassion on him, came to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in the oil and the wine, put him on his own beast, took him to an inn, <sighs> took care of him. The next morning, he came to the innkeeper, took two denarii out of his pocket, gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And if it costs anything more, when I come again, I'll repay you. Which of these three was neighbor to him that fell among thieves? And I read that, and I thought, yeah, Lord, I want that. 
Teach me to love that way. Teach me to love without a hook. Because watch, the Samaritan knew the guy who had fell among thieves had lost everything and had no ability to repay him. Might not ever see him again, might not ever be able to do anything for him. He just did it out of compassion with no expectation. Teach me what it looks like, Lord, to love without expectation. Why? Because if I love you, but then I'm holding a record, okay, I did this for you, now you owe me, now I have an ulterior motive and selfishness is involved. That's not selfless love. I want to love without expectations. I want to love without holding an IOU over your head. I want to love without, with, without a hook. I did this for you, now you owe me. Come on, because there's way too much of that. Am I right? And I thought, Lord, teach me to love like that. Holy Spirit said, man, that's really good. Read it again. So I went back and read it again. A certain man, right, traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves who wounded him, stripped him of his raiment, left him half dead. A certain priest came by, passed by on the other side. A certain Levite came by, came and looked on him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, saw him, had compassion on him, came to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in the oil and the wine, put him on his own beast, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next morning, he got up, told the innkeeper, here's two denarii, and if it costs you anything more, uh, take care of him. If it costs anything more, uh, I'll repay you when I come again. And I read that, and I thought, yeah, Lord. Teach me to love like that. Teach me to love when it's an inconvenience. Why? If he's on the road, he's going somewhere. But now he stops and even spends the night. Can I say this? The greatest investment you can give somebody is your time. Why? Because if you give him money, you can make more money. You can't make more time. We all have a limited window. So now, he doesn't just take out of his funds. He actually took out of his time, spent the night with him. Come on, man. That's a pretty big deal. And in the midst of all that, I'm watching. I'm saying, Lord, teach me. I want to learn how to love like this because this looks like real love to me. This looks like, this looks like kingdom living. And, and I want that. And I want to love that way. Teach me how to love like that. And the Holy Spirit said, oh, that's really good, Don. Read it again. And I'm like, I read it four times. <laughs> Did you guys ever do that with God? How many know if he says read it again, it's not because he missed something. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, Lord, what's up with this? And he said, what if we knew who all the players in the story were? I'm like, okay, you got my interest. He said, read it again and I'll show you. So I will share with you today what I believe the Holy Spirit showed me 12 years ago in my, in my office. And you can discern it for your own self. A certain man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho who fell among thieves who wounded him, stripped him of his raiment, and left him half dead. I would propose to you the certain man is Adam. Traveling from where? Jerusalem to Jericho. We need to understand Jerusalem is taken up from two words, Jeru, Shalom. What's it mean? City of peace. Adam is created by God and placed in the garden. He's not created in the garden, by the way. He's created outside the garden, and then God placed him in the garden. You guys know that? He's placed in the garden. It's a place of what? Perfect peace. Right? On his way to Jericho. We, as soon as I say Jericho, everyone that's been around church for any time, you think of what? The walls fell down. Right? Come on. Joshua chapter 6. The walls fell down. And we know how they blew the horns and all the stuff. And, and they shouted. And the, the Lord's given us the city. And the walls all fall. Read the end of the chapter. Because at the end of the chapter, you know what you find? Joshua is standing on the rubble that used to be the walls. Now, you need to understand. These walls weren't like cinder block. People lived in the walls. They did chariot races on the roof of that wall. 
So we're not talking about a six-inch wall. We're talking about, come on, maybe 15, 20-foot wall, probably 20-foot wall, right? All that rubble has fallen to the ground, and Joshua is now standing upon it. And you know what he says? Cursed is this city. Cursed is the man that rebuilds this city. Cursed is the family of the man that rebuilds this city. And in that day, it was known as the city of the curse. Adam, who's placed in a perfect environment, on his way to the curse, fell among thieves, right? Come on. John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, right? Fell among thieves who wounded him, stripped him of his raiment, right? Come on, why? Because if you read Genesis chapter 2, they're naked and not ashamed. Why? All the scribes would tell you that they were clothed with the kabod of God, C-H-A-B-O-D. It's the weighty glory. It's the weighty presence of God. So they're naked and not ashamed because they're clothed in the glory. But when sin came, the glory lifted, and now they look and go, ah, we're naked, and that's why they went for the fig leaves. Stripped him of his raiment, left him half dead. What do you mean half dead? Physically alive, spiritually dead. You guys tracking with me? And a certain priest came by, and he passed by on the other side. I would propose to you the priest is Abraham. Abraham, yeah, because Abraham had a covenant with God. But Abraham's covenant was for him and his seed after him, but it could do nothing to help fallen man. Passed by on the other side. Abraham's covenant couldn't restore mankind. Abraham's covenant couldn't do anything for fallen Adam. You guys with me? Fallen man still fallen, even with Abraham's covenant. So now Abraham has a covenant with God, but he passes by on the other side. Why? Because he can't do anything to restore the fall, right? And then a certain Levite came by, who came and what? Looked on him and then passed by on the other side. What were, who were the Levites? They were the keepers of the, the keepers of the law, man. I believe it's Moses, the lawgiver. Why? Came and looked on him. Why do you say that? Because Hebrews told me the law could show me how sinful I was, but it couldn't do anything to restore me. <sighs> Came and looked on me. Showed me how sinful I was. Showed me I was in a fallen state. Showed me that I, I couldn't do anything to get out of this fallen state. It couldn't restore fallen man. I believe the Levite is actually Moses who came and showed us how sinful we were and the need we had for a Savior, but couldn't restore us. But a certain Samaritan... Remember that I said you're either a Jew or a Gentile? And the people in Samaria were half Jew, half Gentile? You guys with me? What's that mean? One man representing all. It's one man representing every man. <laughs> Can I talk to you, church? I don't think this is the good Samaritan. I think it's the great Samaritan. What? Saw fallen man in the state he was in, had compassion, and said, I'm not waiting for you to come to me. I'll come to you. And he comes to fallen man. What's he do? The first thing, binds up his wounds. What's he doing? Pouring in the oil and the wine. You don't have to be a theologian to know those are representative of the Holy Spirit. Come on. What's he doing? Restoring fallen man, binding his wounds, pouring in the Holy Spirit, and took him to the church. I, I mean the end. Come on, man. Am I right? Come on, see this. You got to see it for what it is. Brings them to the end. Spends the night with them. Am I right? Spends the night with them, right? And then what? Takes two denarii out of his pocket, hands it to the innkeeper, and says, What? Take care of him. And if it takes a little longer, don't worry. I'll repay you when I come again. <laughs> Can I take you a little deeper? A two denarii. Why is that important? Because a denarii was a day's wages in the days of the Bible for a servant. A servant's wages for a day was a denarii. 
Isn't it amazing that Peter would write with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And he took out two days wages and said, if it takes a little longer. (laughs) 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 Can we talk? Come on, man. Can we talk? Come on. Oh, if it takes a little longer, don't worry. I'll make it worth your while. You just keep taking care of fallen man. You do something to restore fallen man. You do something that's going to get fallen man back on track. Uh, come on. When a guy falls, he doesn't need somebody to tell him he's in a hole. He already knows he's in a hole. He needs somebody to reach out a hand, pull him out of the hole, and say, come on, dude. We can do this together. Let's get out of the hole we're in. Oh. Watch. First verse we started with. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent his son. Am I right? We started there. What's that mean? Do you ever read that and wonder? Like, I read my Bible. I got a lot of questions. You guys got a lot of questions? And we're like, yes, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God. Now, when you get to heaven, you'll be so mesmerized by the glory, you ain't going to ask nothing. <laughs> I promise you. You questions, pfft, nothing. They, they wouldn't even matter. I promise you. Oh. But here's what I thought. From the time of the fall, if we follow chronology, it's 4,000 years from the fall to the birth of Christ. If you follow chronology, you got about 1,000 years from Adam to Abraham. you got another 1,000 years from Abraham to Moses. you got another 1,000 years from Moses to David. And you got another 1,000 years from David to Christ. That's 4,000 years. That's a long time. Can we talk? Yeah. Come on, man. God promised the, the coming, right? As soon as, the, as soon as the crunching of the fruit on Adam's lips was happening, God was promising a Messiah, right? Come on, what did he say? He said, and he says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Did he say that? And if you read your Bible, you know what? In my New King James Version, her seed, the word seed has got a capital S. Why? Because it's a prophecy of Jesus. Right? Come on. Here's what I can promise you. You can read your Bible from front to back over and over 16 times. You know what you're not going to find? You're not going to find any seed that belongs to a woman other than that one. Right? You're going to find the seed of kings. You're going to find the seed of prophets. You're going to find the, the seed of some, uh, uh, some of the great leaders. But here's what you're not going to find. No seed of a woman. Why? Because women don't have seed. Women have eggs. Men have seed. So why does he say, I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed? Why? Because no man is going to be involved. It's the Holy Spirit that overshadows Mary and implants that seed, and it's her seed, and no man was ever involved. So why does he even use the term seed? Genesis 1.11. That's why every seed reproduces after its own kind. What's happening? Why? The seed of Mary is the seed of Christ. Come on. And he's here to reproduce himself in every one of us. Uh, the devil also has seed, and he wants to reproduce himself in everyone. And Genesis 3.15 is the induction of the seed war. Why? Because there's a battle. Satan's trying to reproduce himself on the earth, and so is God. You guys with me? And you're on one team or the other, man. And this is where we're at. This is what the kingdom's all about. And all we have in Christ is an invitation to come and walk with him in his kingdom. Can I tell you what happens? Can I take us a little step further? Right? We talk about Adam's transgression. It's amazing we call it Adam's transgression when Eve's the one that ate the fruit. We never call it Eve's transgression. But wasn't Eve the first one to eat? Come on. But we call it the sin of Adam. Why? Because here's the deal. Eve was deceived, but Adam was disobedient. 
Adam got a direct word from God. Eve got a word from Adam. Eve isn't even created when God gives Adam the word. Eve's deceived Adam was disobedient. What was Adam's real transgression? Can we talk? He ate the fruit. Well, I don't know. Read it. It's Genesis 3.17. God actually says this. So then, because you hearkened to the voice of your wife and you ate of the fruit I told you not to eat of. Wait a minute. What was his real transgression? You hearkened to the voice of your wife and you did what I said not to do. What's it mean? You allowed another voice to be louder than God's in your life. And every time you allow another voice to be louder in your life than God's, you're in trouble. There's great men that will preach great sermons. There will be wonderful people and great books. But I'm going to tell you something. Never let somebody's voice be louder than God's in your life. Because I don't know anybody else that's got a heaven to get you to. So now we have this whole thing playing out. If you got a thousand years from Adam to Abraham and a thousand years from Abraham to Moses and a thousand years from Moses to David and a thousand years from David to Christ and he gave them two denarii. That's 2,000 more years. And then what? It looks like time's running out. And I'm not here to tell you. Like, listen, can, I, can we talk real? I'm 64 years old. I got saved in 1978. I've been on this journey for a little while. I pastored for 41 years. I'm, I, I have a ball. I love this thing, man. I live for this stuff. I love it. But here's the reality, man. 1978, when I got born again, every third sermon was, Jesus is coming. You better get ready. <laughs> Come on, man. Anybody with me? Come on. Who was in that generation? You guys know what I'm talking about. Come on, man. Every third sermon, hey, you better, I'm getting raptured out of here, you know what I mean? And then, and then, and then, come on, then we had 88 reasons why the Lord's coming in 88. Who got the book? Come on. I, had, I gave out copies of the book, lots of copies. It sold 2 million copies. Next year, 89 reasons why the Lord didn't come in 88. <laughs> it came out, I promise you, that book came out. Oh. Y2K, buddy, we're all out of here, come on. All the planets lining up in one quadrant, and at midnight, we're boom, it's coming. Come on, we believe that stuff. We're all sitting around on our rocking chair waiting for Jesus to come. Why? Because I was an escapist. Anybody else one? I preached, man. You better get right. Get your name in the book. Come on. Did we do that? I, I was strong on it, buddy. I'd be like, pray this prayer. Get your name in the book. If you didn't pray the prayer, I'd put you in the headlock. <laughs> pray the prayer now. You pray this prayer. Because <laughs> we're getting your name in the book, and I'm getting a check mark for it. <laughs> come on. We were confident we were right. Jesus is coming, you know. It was strong. But I can tell you this. We've never been this close before. I've never been this old before. I'm just learning how to be this old. <laughs> but the reality is he's coming. Whether he comes for us as a collective body or whether he comes for you as an individual, here's the reality. We've got to be ready. You've got to know your heart's pure, your conscience is clear. You've got to know, man. I've been, I've been hitting some things pretty hard, but I'm going to talk about it just for a minute. In the body of Christ today, we have a whole lot of people that are more in love with the bride than they are with the groom. We have a relationship with the church, but I'm not sure we know Jesus. We just know how to do church. We know how to lift our hands. We know how to shout. We know how to jump. We know how to do it all. We know how to do church. As a matter of fact, I've been a lot of places I think we could do church without him. 
That was challenging. Come on, man. Come on. And I'm not trying to be critical at all. Please don't hear that critical. There's not any part of me that's critical. I'm simply challenging us, man. Do you have a real, genuine, personal relationship? Because that's what the kingdom's really all about. It's an invitation to a relationship with the creator of the world. You want to know who you are? You've got to know him. It's a true story, and I'll stop. Maybe. <laughs> Everything comes down to knowing who you are. Everything comes down to knowing your identity in Christ. That's what's going to matter. Here's the truth. Can I just talk to us, man? I'm, I'm at the office. Uh, we got a couple coming to our house. They're, 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 they don't have jobs. They have positions. They're, 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 they're awesome people and love Jesus really well. Lori wants to make a good impression. It's the first time they're coming to our house, and she's going to cook. And my wife's an amazing cook twice a year. Uh, so, no, never mind. Okay. <laughs> That's really not true now. She's cooking a lot more now. But, uh, but, but, but she's cooking. She's going to do roast beef and mashed potatoes and all the good stuff, you know. And she can, she's awesome. My wife's, my wife's an amazing lady. She really is. They'll tell you that. In the midst of that, what happens is we... Uh, I'm leaving the office. I'm getting ready to come home. And I said, honey, do you need anything? I'm, I'm just ready to leave the office. Do you need anything? And she said, yeah. She said, I thought I had green beans. And she said, but when I went, I don't have them. And she said, can you stop? We have a Wise Market. It's called Weiss, W-E-I-S, Weiss Market, uh, not far from the church. And I said, honey, I'll run to Weiss Market, grab a couple cans of beans, I'll be right home. She said, okay, hurry, right? So I've zipped down to Wise Market. I know the store. I've been in that store thousands of times, right? And I know right where they keep all their canned vegetables. And in our supermarket, I, I can go down here, get in this aisle. And all the canned, canned vegetables are in rows like this. Does that make sense? So, so this is all corn, this is all green beans, this is all peas. You guys saw them, got carrots, whatever, it's all the cans. And, and then they're in different, like, like this is Clover Valley, this is uh, Green Giant, this is Del Monte, you know what I mean? All the different rows. You guys with me? Right? So I'm thinking, uh, so I'm even running and wondering. I wonder if she's going to want like Del Monte or Green Giant, you know, because I have the ability to do the wrong thing a lot. So, <laughs> so, so, so I want to make sure I'm doing this right. And, and uh, I'm thinking about it, and I get there, and I'm ready to grab the green beans. And here's the green beans, and right beside it is corn, right? And here's all these green beans, and here's all these corn. And right between the green beans and the corn is one can, and it's silver. And there's no label on it. And I looked at it. And for whatever reason, I got mesmerized by the silver can. <laughs> and I'm now staring at it thinking, I wonder if that's green beans or corn. And I thought, I got to know. I have to know. So I grabbed it and shook it because I want to see if it sounds like green beans. I don't know why I shook it. <laughs> like, I don't even know what green beans sound like in a can. And I thought, I, I can't tell by that. So I grabbed a can of green beans to see if they weighed the same. Right? I go, okay, I don't know, that's really close, but I don't know, what, what's the corn feel like? So now I'm grabbing the corn over here, and try, I don't know, they feel pretty much the same, and I can't tell. And I'm perplexed beyond measure, I've got to know what's in the can. And so now I'm, I'm staring at this, trying to figure this out, and five minutes have passed by. Remember that I said, the wife said, hurry up. I am in a hurry, but I can't go because I need to know what's in the silver can. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit spoke to me in that moment, and he said, if you took a Sharpie, and you wrote on that can green beans, would it make the contents green beans? And I'm like, no, it wouldn't change a thing. Well, what if you wrote on their corn? Would it make it corn? And I'm like, no, it's, it's still not going to change. And the Holy Spirit said, that's right. The only one that has a right to put a label on it is the maker. Ooh, doggies. I had church in the, in the, in the vegetable aisle. <laughs> Why? 
Because the world's tried to label you and call you all kind of things, success or failure. Uh, uh, come on, addict, whatever. They can call you all kind of things. They can call you alcohol. They can call. Here's the reality, man. The only one that has a right to put a label on you is your father, the one that created you, the one that made you. Come on. The only one that has a right to label you and tell you who you really are did so in a book, and then he gave it to us huh? and said, you want to know who you are? I'll tell you who you are. You're the apple of my eye. Come on. He, oh, we could talk for a long time. I'm a jewel in this crown. I'm seated with him in heavenly places. I am his beloved. My beloved is mine. Come on. We could walk through the book and understand our identity is outlined by the one who created us, and that's what really matters. But I'll never be able to walk fully in the kingdom if I don't understand who I am. Because if I don't understand who I am, I'll never understand what I have. Everybody with me? It means something to me, man. And it's just being able to walk this thing out. We're called to walk with him in his kingdom. It's an invitation to righteousness. It's an invocation to come and walk with him and enjoy him and fellowship with him. Every one of us was a Barabbas, but Jesus came to set us free. Whew. But we've got to decide if we really want that freedom. It was in the state of Pennsylvania in the late 1800s. And there's a prisoner, and his name was Mr. Wilson, and I don't remember his first name, but he had committed murders. And he was sentenced to the electric chair, and back then Pennsylvania had the death penalty, the electric chair. And he was sentenced to die, and he was on death row. But his family had been petitioning because they felt like some of the evidence had been tainted with. And so they were petitioning, they had a good lawyer, and they were going back and forth, and it's just about time for him to go to the electric chair. And they had subpoenaed the, the, the courts, and the judge ruled a mistrial because the evidence had been tainted with. So now the judge has to call the warden, and the warden notified two of the officers at the prison. And they came down to tell Mr. Wilson, you've been granted a pardon by the governor of the state of Pennsylvania. This is a true story. You can check it out. You can check it out on Google. If you have Google and God, you can learn stuff. <laughs> so they come, to the, they come to the prison, and they open the door, and they looked at Mr. Wilson, and they said, Wilson, you're free to go. Get out of here. He said, what do you mean? He said, the governor has issued you a pardon, and you are now free to go. And Wilson looked at him and said, I don't want his stinking pardon. I don't care what he says. I ain't leaving, and you can't make me. And the guards are like, dude, he gave you a he, 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 he gave you a full pardon. You're not sentenced any longer. Get out of here. You're free to go. You don't have to go to death row. I don't want his stinking pardon. And you can't make me. I'm not taking it. I don't want to receive his pardon. And they didn't know what to do. So they shut the door. They called a warden. They said, Wilson don't want the pardon. He said, what do you mean you don't want the pardon? The man's sentenced to death. He's going to die in a couple of days. The warden, he said, the governor pardoned him. He has to go. So they went back and said, you have to go. He said, I ain't going. You can't make me. And he grabbed a hold of the bars and slammed the door shut. And the guards don't know what to do. And they called the warden back. And the warden said, I don't know what to do. So he called the governor. And the governor said, I don't know what to do. What do you mean he doesn't want to pardon? And everybody's perplexed. The guy don't want to pardon. He's sentenced to die. He doesn't want to pardon. So now the governor, because he doesn't know what to do, calls the Supreme Court and has an, uh, what do they call it, like an emergency session. There's a better name for it, but they have an emergency convening of the Supreme Court. And they bring the Supreme Court of the state of Pennsylvania together. It's all a true story. And they meet for three days. They got to deliberate over what to do about Wilson, right? And after three days, here's the ruling they came up with. A pardon is of no value if it's not accepted by the one being pardoned. How powerful is that statement? Whew. Do you understand what I just preached? 
Come on, man, because every one of us was Barabbas, sentenced to death. But we were still sons of the Father. We were just sentenced to death by our own choosing. And Jesus has granted our pardon, and all we have to do is receive it. And that's a powerful message. It's an invitation to walk with him in the kingdom. Stand with me all over the place. Here's the reality. Walking with him in his kingdom is a huge thing. But you have to understand the word kingdom means the king's domain. What's the king's domain? It's where the king has dominion. Your understanding who you are in Christ and what he created you for will not come because Dan Moeller laid hands on you. It won't come because somebody blessed you. It'll come because you spent time with him and got the revelation planted in your heart. I'll make you a promise, man. The revelation of the kingdom and the understanding of who you are in Christ will only come right here. When we actually... We actually begin to see ourselves in his word. Lord, let me see what you see. Open my ears to hear, my eyes to see, my understanding. Let my heart reflect your heart. Peter said we're partakers of his divine nature. Do you understand that? We're a partaker of the DNA of heaven. The DNA is the divine nature of the almighty. It's in you. But it's up to you to develop that. We have spent so much time living by feelings. Addicted to approval. I'll tell you this. The first 15 years I pastored, I had an approval addiction. I only felt good about me if you felt good about me. I only felt like, man, I'm doing a really good job because Mary said I was doing a good job. It had nothing to do with Jesus. had nothing to do with my relationship with God and everything to do with the relationship I had with the people I was pastoring. And if they thought I was doing a good job, I was having a good day. And as soon as somebody criticized me or or came against something that I did or a decision I had to make or a message that I preached, I started questioning my own calling because they must not like me. I must not really be called by God because I was so addicted to the approval of people. Do you know how much of that there is in the body of Christ? If you don't believe that, check out social media. (laughs) Come on, man, it's full of lies and facades. (laughs) Come on, man, we get on this thing and we put out a post and the next thing you know, 10 minutes later, how many likes do I have already? Come on, did anybody share my status? Last month I got 20 shares and this month I only got 8 shares. Oh my gosh, I better do better, I gotta do better. Because we're addicted to approval. So now we're living by our feelings. Can I tell you something about your feelings? They lie (laughs) all the time. If I had a friend who lied to me as often as my feelings, they wouldn't be my friend very long. I'd unfriend them on Facebook. (laughs) Come on. (sighs) What if we just began to say, Father, teach me who I am? Because I think the first step in really living in the kingdom is letting the Holy Spirit teach you who you really are. To be able to open up that book and all of a sudden revelation. Come on. 
Listen, please hear what I'm going to say. I'm not trying to be critical. I have people all the time that I counsel with a lot, and they'll be like, man, you know what I ask people when they're really struggling? Tell me about your devotions. How are you doing with your devotions? Oh, man, I listen to Bill Johnson. I listen to Dan Moeller and Todd White. I, sometimes I even listen to you, Pastor. I'm like, oh, thanks. I mean, at least I'm in the group. <laughs> and I feel better about me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but here's the reality, man. If that's what your devotion time looks like, you're not spending time with God. You're spending time with Bill. You're spending time. Come on. Because we think if we listen to Stephen Furtick, that was our devotion time. No, that wasn't your time with God. That was your time with Stephen. Do you understand what I'm saying? And now all of a sudden we're listening to worship music and listening to all kinds of preachers and every YouTube video on the planet. But are we actually spending time with the book open on our lap before God with our heart open before him? Because listen, man, if all you're getting is everybody else's stuff, it's regurgitated. You need to be, have it for yourself. You need to get your own message, your own word. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you as an individual. There's nothing wrong with gleaning from all that other stuff. I think it's really important, and I'm glad we do it. But I don't ever want it to take the place of just our daily time alone with God. Your detog, D-T-A-W-G, daily time alone with God. We need that. You can take all that other stuff, and that's awesome. But until you run it through your grinder, it's not your sausage. You've got to get it in your own grinder, man. You've got to take ownership of it. So what does that look like? To actually say, Jesus, I need you to do that work in me. I want you just to bow your head and close your eyes for just a minute. And the only reason I do that is because I think this is really personal between you and the Lord. But I'd ask you the question, man. What's your devotional life look like? What's your time with him? If you're going to walk in the kingdom, man, you better spend time with the king. It's his kingdom. What's it look like for you spending time alone with God? What's it look like for you spending time with the Holy Spirit? Letting the Holy Spirit speak in you, through you, and to you. I promise you, man, this kind of stuff matters. This is where revelation happens. Revelation, I'm going to say this. Revelation doesn't come because somebody preached a good sermon to you. Revelation will really hit you when it's you with your Bible open before the Lord and allowing the Holy Ghost to just speak to you. Nothing wrong with them planting the seeds, but then you've got to go after it and dig it up and go back through it and check it out and make it your own and take ownership of that and become everything God's creating you to be. I'm going to say this for some of you right now, man. I feel like that's going to be a new mantra. I am becoming everything God created me to be. I am becoming everything God created me to be. Why? Well, it's a process of becoming, man. We're in a process you're not a human being on a spiritual journey. You're a spirit being on a human journey. Whew. You're only here for a little while. But your spirit's going to live forever, man. Whew. I challenge you. What's it look like for you and Jesus? I want to pray for you right now. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for the privilege we have of walking with the King. I thank you, God, for the privilege we have of knowing you. Because that's where eternal life really looks like. And this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Teach us what that really means to know you, to be intimate with you, 
to be in intimate times with you, God, where we're just alone with you in our prayer closet, alone with you in our bedroom, alone with you, God, alone with you in the office or the truck or wherever it might be, but we're just really totally involved, immersed in your goodness, God, understanding more and more of who you created us to be. Help us to understand, God, that our mission in life is to become who you created us to be, to be able to walk this thing out, to walk with Jesus uh, day by day, hour by hour, to make that the reality of our life, consistent and steadfast before you, God. Father, I ask you, come. Come in your goodness. Come in your grace. Come in your glory. Come in your mercy, God, and come and speak to us and draw us. Give us, Lord, a passion to know you more, that we would become passionate to know Christ, that we would become passionate to know God, that, Lord, everything that you're doing inside of us wasn't just for our own personal consumption, that it wasn't a lake for our own personal use, but it was a river that would now water everyone that we came in contact with. Uh, teach us what that actually looks like and help us to become who you created us to be. Holy Spirit, I welcome you right now. Speak to us today. Draw us near. That when we leave this place this afternoon, we're going to look more like Jesus than we did when we came in. Because we go from glory to glory to the image of our Christ. Every encounter has one purpose, to make us look more like you, Jesus. Never let us have an encounter that we go down on the floor and we get up different than we were when we went down. God, we've got to get different. We've got to go from glory to glory. We need to have change. Help us, Father, I pray. Teach us what it looks like to walk with you every hour of every day that we're not making any decision that you're not involved in. We're just walking out in the kingdom, representing the king, putting Jesus on display everywhere we go. May we be good representatives of who you called us to be in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. 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 Up to you, sir.